Welcome back to the Mining Your Business podcast, a show all about process mining, data science, and advanced business analytics. My name is Patrick, and with me, as always, my colleague, Jakub. Hello, Patrick. Joining us today is Alex Sharp from Clarite Q. He is going to tell us all about his tried and true methods of helping organizations get their processes in order. Let's get into it. Another episode of Mining Your Business podcast, another brilliant guest line up to share his wisdom with us. I'll be honest, one of the best things about doing the podcast is extracting the knowledge of people who have been in the field for way, way longer than we have. Our today's guest of honor is Alex Sharp, a lifelong consultant in Claritech Systems Consulting and author of the book Workflow Modeling, Tools for Process Improvement and Application Development. Alec, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. I've, I've listened to some of your previous episodes, uh, and I, I, I think this will be mutually beneficial. Thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, it's our pleasure. I mean, we love broadening our horizons. And as we mentioned a couple of times before, uh, we, it's always uh, when we started doing the job, we thought that there's just process mining. And then soon thereafter, we found out, oh, wait, there's more than doing process mining. So Having people such as yourself telling us about those horizons that are up there is it's insane. But the first question I would really have for you is uh, if there is still something in the world of business processes and management uh, that still keeps surprising you today? <laughs> uh, that keep uh, well. Let me see. Uh, I, th- I think uh, no. <laughs> I'm an old man. <laughs> I've been doing this. I've had my consulting business for 40 years. Uh, the first 10 years were largely doing data work. And uh, the last 30 years, my focus has been on business processes. I, although now my data business is taking over again as well. So honestly, I don't, I don't think I get surprised very often anymore. I, as an example, um, I do a lot of work that I call project recovery. So a team, whether it's application development or process improvement, they, a large project or program is stalled and I get asked to come in and get things moving again. And, and there are some very common patterns. So I, I'm not a slave to those patterns, uh, but uh, if, you, if you'd like, I'll share them with you. Uh, please, yeah, absolutely. Please go ahead. <laughs> okay. So uh, the number one problem I, I see is failure to identify the, the true end-to-end process. E- even if your scope of authority is only a piece of it, you really need to understand from the initial trigger to the final result what is the scope of the process and what is involved in it? And I believe that is very true in process mining. Uh, we mm-hmm. will talk about that a little bit more. Second common problem, premature diagnosis of the problem. <laughs> so if you jump right in and you don't really know the end-to-end context, then you can easily think, oh, well, we know where the problem is. Um, Let's, let's solve it. Um, a, a very quick example. An insurance company brought me in because they had determined the problem 
was in the testing of new applications before they went into production. Mm -hmm. And so all the, the fingers were pointing at the testing group and they built a problem statement, which gave me a barrier to overcome. And then, but the, the actual problem was they weren't looking end to end at, at initiation, development, mm -hmm. testing, and implementation. When we showed them the true end-to-end -end process, they realized, uh, actually, testing was not the problem. <laughs> it, it was <laughs> elsewhere. So that's the second common problem, premature diagnosis of the solution or the, the problem. And the third one is a rapid descent into unhelpful detail. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we see that very often. <laughs> very too quickly into detailed flow modeling without having established a high-level scope model. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. So uh, in terms of project, uh, so that's one thing, that's project recovery. But can you tell us a little bit about, or people that aren't familiar with your work, what else do you do? That's good. Well, I, I do a lot of data modeling and data management work. So I, I help organizations understand the data they need in order to operate. And that's more on the operational side mm -hmm. than the analytic side. So I do a lot of work. Uh, both um, consulting in and teaching and speaking on business-friendly concept modeling or conceptual data modeling. Obviously, I do a lot of work in process improvement, mm -hmm. and my focus is at the front end. What mm -hmm. is the actual process? What are the real issues? What are the goals? And I, I have a, a, an interesting feature-based approach to the design of new processes And I also do a lot of work in uh, application requirements. So um, right. uh, use cases, user stories, um, um, service specifications mm -hmm. or microservices, if you want. And, and, and business is booming. And I think one reason <laughs> business is booming is I, I may, well, I'm not sure how to word it, but in, in a way I cover the full stack. Process application data All right. with consulting and teaching. And that turns out to be surprisingly quite a unique combination. Mm. And I'll, I'll just go on for another 30 seconds, <laughs> especially helping organizations see end-to-end -end and what the root cause of some of their dysfunction is. My clients have pulled me into uh, the organizational change area. So mm -hmm, I, I mm -hmm. had many clients beginning five or six years ago tell me, uh, you're not our data guy or our process guy. You're just our change guy. So I help uh, the change. And of course, I've, I mentioned project recovery, helping uh, stumbling efforts. This is great because change is also very much uh, the, the focus or the goal, what we are trying to do through our process mining projects. However, you mentioned a word, uh, let's say two words that haven't really been in the podcast yet, and this is uh, process modeling. Could you tell us a bit about what process modeling is so that also our listeners are, well, including myself, are a bit up to, uh, up to date? So process modeling to me is engaging business people in, in, in the, the act of identifying and then depicting or representing their business processes. And so process modeling might initially begin 
with simply saying, uh, we believe we have a dispute resolution process, then we would build a visual model. And I, I will provide for your listeners uh, some graphic examples, real life examples of what I mean. But a process scope model would be a simple one page depiction of the process in terms of a framework that uh, one of my students named TRAC, T-R-A-C, <laughs> which stands for Trigger, Results, Activities, Cases, or Variations. So mm-hmm. we build a very simple diagram that says at one end, here is the triggering event. At the other end, here are the results received by the significant stakeholders in the process. What does the customer get? What do we get? What does the sales rep get? In between, the A is for activity, and we only ever identify five to seven major activities. Mm -hmm. So this is not a flow model. It's a high-level depiction. And then finally, what are the the cases or variations? Mm-hmm. So we we fill a new order, we fill a standing order, we fill a replenishment order. And this is something, that first stage of modeling is something I do on 100% of my project recovery jobs, because people have always gone into too much detail <laughs> without really comprehending the end-to-end flow. So when when I hear cases and activities and variations, my process mining senses start to tingle here. But uh, just so so we're not talking about the same cases and and activities that we would in process mining. And if you could, how would you go about finding these um, one cases, these activities with, with the client? How how do how do you go about doing that today? Okay, well, and and I am go- going to circle back to mining, but let me answer that. <laughs> one of the extremely simple guidelines. Uh, that I, well, it's part of my teaching. It's what I'm known for. One thing I'm known for in the business process conference circuit, certainly an important part of my consulting is simply properly naming the process. So mm-hmm. somebody says, we have an onboarding process and I want to slap them and say, no, no, yeah, that <laughs> onboard is the verb. So a process should always have an active verb and a noun. So, so let's say that we're at uh, a university and the process is to admit a student, a verb, an active verb, and a noun. Not a mushy verb like manage, process, handle, or do, but an active verb like admit, evaluate, assess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I ask them, what are the qualifiers that go between the verb and the noun? Is is there some, because as you know, in process mining, there is always some object going through the process. And and I will call that a token. Now, is there some characteristic of the token, like student, that is going through the process that changes the path it takes? Mm -hmm. And as an example, in I've done a lot of work in uh, higher education in the United States, in particular, on the recruit, admit, and onboard student (laughs) process. And so what is the qualifier that goes on student? Well, it's pretty easy. In most universities, they say, well, there is an in-state undergraduate student. There is an out-of-state undergraduate student. There is uh, an international 
um, you know, graduate student, there is a returning mature student. Usually there are three to five major cases, but I was at uh, a global um, air logistics company mm -hmm. and we identified 22 cases, which turned out to be their problem. <laughs> so <laughs> each case is a variant on the base process. And it's, oh gosh, I better stop. <laughs> but it's incredibly important to simplify your world. You, you, if you try and, and build models, see, I'm, I'm going to get back to modeling. If mm -hmm. you try to build a model, especially a flow model that covers in one diagram all the cases of a process, nobody on earth will be able to understand that model. Right. Uh, I like when we were uh, discussing the details of the episode and what we would like to be really talking about, uh, when I mentioned that we are doing process mining, what you wrote me was that uh, process mining achieves its true power when it is combined with other aspects of process modeling and analysis, including helping business people identify their true end-to-end -end process and why they need to change them. Uh, yeah. This is a lovely sentence. Could you please elaborate a bit more on that? Because this is basically the the let's say the 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 min the position where process mining meets process modeling, and I think this is uh, very intriguing also for us and for our listeners. Okay, well now that that's that that is a big topic, and if you'll if you'll permit me, let me just go back for a minute to the modeling question. Please do. Because when, when I go into an organization that is struggling, whether, whether they have used process mining or whether they are just going in by hand and building workflow models or swim lane diagrams, they have usually gone into far too much detail too quickly uh, and without really any, any guardrails. So... I mentioned doing a process scope model. That, that's the, the starting point. What is the trigger, the result, the major activities, the cases or variations? Then we will move into the conceptual modeling stage. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. any kind of model, data model, use case model, service model goes through three levels of detail that are well understood in the enterprise architecture and business architecture fields. And those are scope, concept, detail. And most of us with a computer science background go too quickly to the detail level <laughs> without understanding the first two. So the scope tells me what is the process. The initial business-friendly concept-level workflow, which is nothing but boxes and lines, not all those BPMN symbols, a very simple diagram to help business people help you identify all of the participants in the process, and therefore, we can identify all the systems that are actually being used. And then eventually we'll get into the detailed level, which is your, you know, all of your, your alternate flows, your gateways. That's your detailed BPMN model. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you start there, you will, you will mess things up. So, uh, back to your question. <laughs> yeah. So keeping <laughs> I love those, the way you're those, answering those. <laughs> That's brilliant. Those, those, those models in mind, uh, I would say, that where like what I do in the process change field 
and how it would work synergistically with process mining is first, we would engage the business in, un, in helping comprehend their true end-to-end process. Okay, and, and a, a real quick example, I was consulting for a telecom company recently. They were sure they had three main processes. Sell a service, implement a service, uh, collect, bill for a service. And I showed them that, helped them see that all their problems were because that was really just one process. Mm-hmm. From the perspective of the customer, we have gone from need is the trigger through to implemented and collected, which are the results. And that helped them understand all the conflict. And it also, now here's the key point, simply doing that allowed us to enumerate all the, well, we could identify all of the actors in the process, the functional organizations and the actors, and then we could identify the tools and data sources that were at work. And and this is, where I, th- I think this is extremely uh, helpful. And then, and then when we get into that initial business-friendly flow modeling, we will discover additional actors that we didn't consider. We will discover that they are using other systems. And now we have a richer, a more complete view mm-hmm. of the data that is underlying the current process and now, in, in terms of what, what you fellows do, now you, now you have, now you know, oh, <laughs> I, it's not all in SAP. I've got this stuff that is up there in force.com. And then this group is unbelievably using Lotus Notes. These people are reco- doing stuff on Excel. There's all these shadow systems. And oh, now we know that collections is part of the process, and that's in Oracle Financials for some weird reason. So we get a richer understanding of who is involved in the process, what do they do, and Mm -hmm. how do they do it. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, because in a way, we have a lot of clients that see um, or their organization or their their domain or wherever they work, they see this tool, they say, oh, I can solve a lot of your problems in the finance department, and they go and they want to implement it. But um, from what it sounds like, that in your mind, this can be a little bit of a hindrance rather than instead of going from the top down, looking at the bigger picture and, and identifying all these actors. And then, and only then, once you have the full end-to-end process, can you actually start with this type of tool? Is, is that right? That, that, that is perfectly said. And, and it would take me five minutes to say that, but you did it in 15 seconds. <laughs> well, well done. Okay, so is, is that the phase where, where a process mining project should start? Like once the, the foundations of your approach have been, have been implemented, that's when the, the process mining part can, can take I, I absolutely believe that. And, and then the, the power of process mining is when people get to see the reality. Mm-hmm. Like, why, why do 17% of our instances of this process, why, why do they stop it there in internal audit? And then we go in, and, and then the, the other thing I would like to talk about is the concept of the enablers. But the, the process mining will reveal the reality, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, as you know, uh, always uh, the, 
it's always surprising oh, yeah. when people see the actual uh, path that some instances of their process takes. And then I, I mentioned the concept of enablers. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I'll make sure we're, we're finished with the f- current con- <laughs> topic before I move on to that. Right. So a- anyway, I think, yes, we, we do some, uh, some scope level modeling to help everybody see the big picture, business friendly flow modeling to help, um, well, to help uncover obvious problems. And, and also to help uncover additional actors, et cetera. And then now we can go in and use process mining to show the reality, like what is actually happening. Right. So it's more about uncovering on the details level that you spoke about before. On that type of um, granular level is where process mining really starts to shine. Yeah. I, and if I can add, like, I, I always tell people, like, we, we model the process initially, typically in a room with a whiteboard. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't actually go out onto the shop floor initially. I'll, I'll work in a facilitated session. Unfortunately, these days it's on Zoom. <laughs> uh, but we'll work in a facilitated session to help understand the, the assumed overall structure of the process And then I always say, walk the flow. So actually go out into the physical workplace and see if you see anything unusual. Uh, For example, I had one job where I saw people who were doing a kind of evaluation and some people had a huge backlog, a huge stack of work (laughs) to be done and others had almost nothing. Okay, well, that's a little strange. But the other example of walking the flow is using process mining because then you are literally you're you're helping the machine the machine is helping you walk the flow Mm -hmm. which is pretty cool (laughs) um like you have this uh very interesting uh frame when you are about uh, discovering your organization processes where you essentially uh divide it into three steps with first one being establishing process scope and objectives. I guess this is the high level of the process. Second one would be the to understand the as-is process. And the third one is to design to be process. And what I would like to now do is basically dive deeper into these three topics. And I would also love to hear your take on when and how does it even make sense to even establish any process mining initiative in these things and whether it even makes sense. because. As you are mentioning, sometimes it's just too detailed to even address problems that you're trying to solve with such a granular overview of your problems or as is processes. Okay, yeah, then, <clears throat> boy, that's, uh, do you have an easier question for me? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was thinking of, in, 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 in the overview you, you gave us, Jakob, but I, I might add one additional step. So number one, identify the processes and what they are expected to achieve. Right. Uh, number two would be do a stakeholder-based assessment of the as-is. Understand mm-hmm. the pain points felt by all of the participants mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the stakeholders. Then we understand the as-is, and then we design the to be. We mm-hmm. understand the as-is, we assess it by enabler and then design the to be. 
Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes when we do those first two stages, identify the process, and then uh, we do what I call building a case for action. So what are the problems perceived in the as-is process? Why did they appear at this point in time? And what would we like to see in an improved process? Sometimes at that point, the problems are so obvious. They're so large. You, you almost don't need it's almost premature to go into detailed analysis of the process (laughs) because our problem is our organizational structure was effective 20 years ago, but we're in a different world. We, 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 we have conflicting data sources. We are, Oh, in, in private enterprise, the main problems, believe it or not, are poorly thought out performance measures. So I I guess what I'm saying is sometimes you just, you don't need to get into the details. The Mm -hmm. the problems are so large and egregious and boy, I don't, they're so large that you (laughs) can, you can, and you should attack them very quickly. Mm -hmm. So even like people, People hear the word process and they think, oh my God, you know, years of process analysis and modeling. But I, I've actually been told that the approach I take is very agile. It's feature-based. We, we can accomplish significant change in days or weeks, not mm-hmm, months mm-hmm. or years. And sometimes you just have to improve the current situation, like get it out of the basement and then perhaps looking at process mining would be more appropriate. Right. So when you go into an organization and you you talked about how a lot of these um, functional organizations aren't aware of the whole end-to-end process and making them aware can make them see a lot of the problems. It, I feel like that is a little bit analogous to, to what you just said. Do you ever just go into an organization and instead of thinking, hey, this is a process problem, realize very quickly that this is so far beyond a process problem that it's um, a more organizational problem or any of the problems that you that you face. And my question, I guess, would be, what do you then do um, in, in those cases? Well, well I, th- I think what I would say, I would express it a little bit differently. They, <clears throat> well, not every problem is, is a process problem. Mm-hmm. Um, when... I am brought into an organization and they, they feel that something isn't working right. You know, I use my experience and some frameworks and I, I make an initial decision. Maybe this is a process problem. <clears throat> Maybe it is a data or information problem. Maybe it is an organizational dysfunction problem. But let's say I think it's a process problem or even an organizational dysfunction problem. I'm still going to do that initial scope modeling and the Mm -hmm. stakeholder-based assessment because that gives – the beautiful thing about a process is – when when I'm trying to demonstrate this idea, if if I was teaching in person, You would see me do these sort of hand motions about what is a process, triggering event, final results, 
major activities, cases or variations. And the key thing is a process cuts horizontally across the various functional areas in the enterprise. And so that is, a, that is in my experience, the most powerful lens for understanding organizational dysfunction. Like mm-hmm. at that, at that um, telecom company I mentioned, once they saw that the end-to-end process included sales, engineering, and implementation, and uh, finance, then they could see where all the conflict was coming from, the organizational dysfunction. Yeah. So this is, that's why my, my clients started telling me um, several years ago that I wasn't really their process guy, I was their change guy. <laughs> so this is a great lens for understanding the reality of organizational, well, how the organization behaves, and then we can talk in a minute about how we get into understanding the root cause of that behavior. Yeah, we've actually had a guest uh, on our show before who said that uh, he finds out uh, how the organization works in terms of processes when he asks whether they are differentiating between purchase to pay process and accounts payable process, which is basically, uh, you know, two ends of the same process. And it really ring a bell. And uh, yeah, it was exactly the problem that uh, they are looking at the processes from there, as you said, the horizontal. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and in fact, we have a graphic that I'll, I'll share with your, uh, <clears throat> your listeners after the podcast with some examples. For instance, at a large, um, at a very famous international um, technology company, they thought their processes literally were sales, manufacturing planning, manufacturing, logistics, and finance. And that was the root of their problem. They simply did not recognize that those were all participants in a single process, which was to to fill an order. And so simply building that initial scope model, there were some real surprises in there. Some people in the organization said, oh, I didn't expect to see manufacturing as part of order fulfillment. I thought we went to the warehouse. And we fulfilled out of inventory. Well, no, this company had shifted to a build to order philosophy. And other people said, I'm surprised to see collections as part of this process. Well, it used to be a separate process because we would do it once a month and collect for multiple orders. But we've realized life is better when we collect order by order. So simply expressing the true end-to-end process um, <clears throat> it's is just it's it's a huge contributor to people's willingness to engage in change because everybody has always seen their functional mm-hmm. perspective and once they see that their function is part of something bigger it has an in, an incredible psychological impact and we have to we have to take them through that impact to prepare them for what is coming and what is coming <laughs> what is coming is a, a closer look at the reality then of how this end to end process behaves 
what are, for instance, what are some of the policies that pit one uh, function against another? We, I, I, well, I mentioned in private enterprise, the big problem is very often poorly thought out performance measures and rewards. Mm-hmm. We are very frequently, like I, I worked in a, in a large European justice system and that was trying to understand why does it take us so long to get through the, the process of a trial? And it turned out how we paid, how they paid lawyers was entirely based on lawyers delaying the case. <laughs> oh, wow. So they, they, the, the lawyers were literally paid for every document they filed. So they would file a document for an they would file for an adjournment. They would file for, um, for a continuance. They would mm-hmm. file for another discovery session. The only way they got paid was on a per-filing basis. So, mm-hmm. of course, mm-hmm. they, my program manager in that environment referred to these as perverse incentives. Mm-hmm. And, and, frankly, no amount of process mining is going to help <laughs> you. When the big picture is people are being paid to disrupt the process. Mm-hmm. And then in what I call the mission-driven fields, healthcare, higher education, social services, the problem there is poorly thought-out policies. Very frequently, the policies are cre- policies and rules are created by people ha- who have no awareness of on-the-ground reality. So you have these policies that effectively put people in the process in handcuffs or mm-hmm. at the same mm-hmm. time. And this was somebody at the Europe. Uh, nope, I better not mention them by name. But <laughs> a major EU agency said our corporate legal people believe better safe than sorry. So we have created all these internal policies that require so many unnecessary checks and approvals mm-hmm. and notifications that totally slow the process down. Yeah. Now, process mining would probably help you see that, mm-hmm. but you maybe you don't need to go that far. Yeah. So I, I have this concept of the enablers of a process, six factors that we need to study. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, we maybe I've gone to too far. Yeah. We will get to them in a second. Uh, okay. It's one of my future questions. And I know we will a little uh, neglect here all this uh, process discovery phase and, you know, understanding the process as is. Unfortunately, we always only have, uh, you know, about 60 minutes for these discussions. But what is really interesting also for us, because in my opinion, it doesn't matter whether you are working in details or in this higher level of scope or concept um levels of your processes, uh, you always at some point have to design new to be processed, either in the very small nuances as is in the IT systems that we work with in process mining or in the higher organizational level. And so my question would be, how do you go about uh, designing a new to be processed, especially in the time and, you know, organizations when there's just so difficult for, for some organizations to change in the first place. Okay. Um, the, the, the design of the new process begins, there is an overlap 
between it, like in my overall methodology, mm-hmm, there mm-hmm. is there is the phase where we understand the as is process. So the first two phases are we identify, we we scope out the process. Second, we do an assessment by stakeholder. Then we understand the as is process, and that is you know progressive levels mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. Uh, modeling, typically workflow modeling, and that could very much include process mining. Mm-hmm. And then when we we then there is this overlap, there is this stage that we, that I refer to as assess the as is process by enabler. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. The and don't worry, Jakob, I am going to answer your question. <laughs> um, so the framework that I use, uh, which is very similar to the framework my colleague Roger Burlton uses, he has the famous Burlton hexagon, mm-hmm. and I have my enabler concept. And back in the late 1990s, when we were both speaking at the very first enterprise architecture conference, we saw each other's presentations and we thought, we each thought the other had stolen (laughs) from us because his hexagon and my enablers basically touched the same point. So here it is. So I think that the performance of a process is dictated by six primary factors. There are many more, but as analysts, This is a a reasonable number. The first is the actual design of the process. Mm -hmm. Who does what, when, what is included? So we will learn about that from our process scope model and our flow modeling. Number two, the application of systems, data, and technology. So what information systems are we using? What data sources? How integrated or disintegrated Mm -hmm. are they? And increasingly, we're looking at, you know, devices like drones, so other kinds of technology. Those two are what I call the usual suspects. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. what everybody focuses on. The ones that really matter, in my experience, are the next three. So next we get into motivation and measurement. How, How do we motivate performance? What what are we measuring and what are the associated rewards and punishments? A simple example, a big tech company I was at gave salespeople a bonus for any order in the last two weeks of the fiscal quarter. So of course, they held all the orders until the last two weeks. So that's motivation and measurement. Big problem in private enterprise. Then we have human resources and organization. Basically, how are roles or jobs defined and how are organizations structured? That can be a problem in any kind of organization. So we often see cases where what is logically one task has been arbitrarily split across three different roles because of how the roles are defined. And then the third of the big three is what I call policies and rules. So what are our internal policies and rules? Do they make any sense? Uh, usually they are uh, haven't been updated in many years and they are conflicting or overlapping. And the other big thing here is how have we interpreted external regulations? And our friends in corporate legal 
typically like to interpret them far too stringently. And then the sixth enabler, historically for me, that was facilities, the actual design of the physical workspace. Mm -hmm. But now that so much is happening in the digital space, now uh, many of my clients generalize that and they just, they look at uh, data information and knowledge as a sixth enabler. Uh, others look at their communication systems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's just, it's a framework. And, and to me, the whole reason we do as is modeling is to see weird behaviors and then say, can I explain it with these enablers? Or simply ask people, what is right or wrong with performance measurement in this process? What is right or wrong with role or job definition in this process? And then you end up with a lot of very specific problems. And now we can take that and very directly turn it into the features we want in the new process. So for instance, if the problem is all the orders come in in the last two weeks of the the quarter, and that places a huge burden on production, well, then in the future, we would like to see a level flow of orders. And then how we can achieve. So that's a feature that we want. And then we go back and and say, how can we make this feature work? And again, that involves looking at the enablers. What do we change in the workflow? What do we Mm -hmm. change in systems? What do we change in performance measurement? And I typically, even on the largest redesign projects, typically identify somewhere between five and 10 critical features of the new process and Mm -hmm. understand all those enablers. What will it take to make each feature work? I'll just say one more thing. I didn't realize it until a client pointed it out, but uh, I was working on a procurement process and this amazing woman in the session said, this is amazing. This means we do not need to implement the new process as a big bang. We can implement it feature by feature. So this is Mm -hmm. actually an agile process change methodology. And I was like, oh my God, (laughs) I was so amazed. I hadn't realized that, but now it's very important. So Jakob, I probably gave you much longer answer than you wanted. I love it. I love it, Alec. I I had a a question when you were mentioning the performance measurements. Yes. So, and talking about these enablers, how important is it in this case to have, if I'm, if I'm thinking about salespeople and for example, the accounts receivable people, their goals and their motivations and their um, overall performance is measured completely differently. So how is it important from like an end to end perspective that these goals are aligned on the central process? And how do you go about these individual goals in comparison to salespeople and, for example, accounts receivable people? And and that's a great question, Patrick. And and that's why it is so important for people to see the entire end-to-end. Because then, without judgment, um, Mm -hmm. I'm often told by clients that my approach is blame-free. So we're not saying, hey, you know, accounts receivable, you're idiots because of this, or sales, <laughs> you're, you're ruining the company. We just say, okay, management, senior management has set these performance targets when they were only considering functional organizations. 
when we look end to end, you tell me, and I have the people you know in the room tell me what what do you think are the likely consequences of this measure? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the fact that we are dealing with an offshore. Um, payables group who will not accept variations of even one penny you know mm-hmm. but you know, be, because of some other bizarre rules you know what what are the consequences well people become much more open to change and and i think that it, like your question is 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 brilliant it the almost the key element of process change is helping all of the involved functional areas and the individual roles see that there is some overarching objective. I, I was at an, and there's also the concept of the differentiator. What do we really need to be great at? And that, and you can't have, you know, sales being great at customer intimacy and manufacturing being great at product leadership and finance being great at operational excellence, or everybody will be in conflict. So it's it's making it visible. And then I, I let the people help to craft new... Well, no, I take that back. <laughs> you usually take this up to senior leadership and, and explain, you've got your people pulling in different directions, and the performance measures are actually impeding the process. And, and I work at that level to, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to come up with new measures and, and a new overarching sense of direction. Now, I would like you to give me actually an advice. So imagine that we are these data engineers, data guys that are working on this detail, uh, details level. So we are working with the information from the systems, but uh, going for us from that little process that we are visualizing in our process mining tool is great, but uh, we would like to take the next step. What kind of recommendation for us would you, would, you, uh, would you have so that we don't get stuck in trenches on these, uh, I don't yeah. want to say little problems, they are still problems, uh, no matter you put it, but uh, thinking in a bigger perspective. Okay, I... Um... I think I can answer that. Um, so I've I've mentioned many times the process scope model, mm-hmm. trigger, result, activities, cases, and then I usually add to that. I I, I simplify the scope model. Um, well, I, I produce what I call a process summary chart, and it may not even show the trigger and results. It may or may not, but it will show here is the process. Here are the five to seven major phases in the process. And then we superimpose that on here are the functional areas that are involved in the process. And this is usually a real surprise to senior management. I I was at a... um, America's largest pipeline operator and oil refiner. And I was going through this and the president of the company, suddenly he just, he face palmed. He went, oh my God, now I see why our process improvement efforts never go anywhere. <laughs> and I said, okay, Rod, that's, that's great. Why? And he said, we've been doing functional improvement, not process improvement. I said, you're a smart guy. 
That's why you're <laughs> the president. Okay, so this is, and, and then what we can do, and, and in terms of adding value, we can then, for instance, um, under each functional area, we can list, here are all the different systems each function is using or under each major activity. You know, we can also, I also use this framework to show the primary performance measures for each function and therefore how they conflict with the process. So my, my advice, always get up to that process scope level and use that as a framework to put other information in context. So that's, unfortunately, that's only one. The other thing <laughs> I like to do is build concept models, conceptual data models. And I, so that's getting up to a business-friendly overview level where, um, to put it simply, every entity in the data model is a thing that business people discuss on a daily basis. So we're not talking fifth normal form granular tables. We're talking, you know, we, we, we've got customer, mm -hmm. site, product, order, channel, and so on. And what I like to do is show that different parts of the organization are operating under different concept models. Mm -hmm. And that's why they're at, at loggerheads. In fact, one of the world's largest technology companies asked me a while ago, could you build for us a data modeling for data scientists class? And I said, well, that's interesting. Why? And the answer was, well, our data scientists do not seem to understand that the word customer means something different to marketing. It's different in sales. It's different in logistics. It's different in operations. It's different in finance. And now, and I had another case where somebody in a workshop in the Netherlands sort of faced palm and said, oh my God. I see now we've been building a data swamp, not a data lake. <laughs> so in my data modeling classes, all the people coming now are agile developers who realize they need that underlying conceptual model platform, business intelligence people who need to understand operational data better, um, internet of things people, data scientists, uh, not only SQL people, data lake people. Yeah. We all need that conceptual underpinning. So those are, sorry, Jacob, it was a long answer, but I think there are very specific things we can do. And we, and we don't have to beat management over the head. We just have to say, hey, we have something interesting to share with you. That's great. Um, so when we talk about changing the as-is process to the to-be process, there often tends to be a... I guess, sentiment of changing technologies is easier than changing the behavior of the people. And so a lot of uh, improvements that are suggested is automating things um, with RPA or any other tool that you can think of. Um, so in, in your experience, how much is that um, oh, like beating, um, what's the expression I'm looking for, overdoing um, the automation to a certain degree and kind of missing yeah. the, the point of the problem? Yeah, this is, well, thank you. This is what keeps me in business <laughs> because everybody, it's like we're, we're in Star Wars. We're on a tractor beam and we're getting, you know, pulled into the world of, of technical change, uh, which may not actually, um, 
really make a big difference. Uh, and, and so you have to understand then, like what? People are scared about the resistance to change. So we, you know, oh, it's hard to change people's behavior. Yeah, it's hard to change people's behavior if they are trapped in a poorly defined job and they are struggling to achieve process measures that are, well, I won't, I won't say stupid, but <laughs> people, people, the people do not blindly resist change to the status quo. They, an article that was written in, in, in the year I was born, like 69 years ago, there was an article in Harvard Business Review that the title was People Do Not Resist Technical Change, They Resist Social Change. And it was my first exposure to the idea that when we make change, if it if it impacts the equilibrium that a person is in, they know who they work with. They know who they take work from, where it goes to. They know the constraints from above. They know the support. They, they just have this comfortable spot. And that's why it is so important to have the people. My, like my whole approach is based on simplicity and accessibility mm-hmm. and the engagement of the people who do the work the people who are actually going to have to change. And that's why we need to see that they are, if we make a particular change, that, boy, I had a good example from a European central bank where, you know, there was a change (laughs) people wanted to make, but we could see it was negatively going to affect the measured performance of the people who we wanted to change. So you, th- this is why we have to take a holistic look. That's what the whole concept of the enablers is, a holistic look at all of the factors that impact a process. So w- when we use the, t- the, the term process, I do not think of the process as just a series of steps. Mm-hmm. I think of it as a machine that includes job and organizational design, performance measures, the the layout of facilities. So people are much more much more accepting mm-hmm. of change. I, I had quick story, I had a client at a large US university who asked me, Alec, do you have a degree in organizational psychology? or organizational change? And I said, no, um, not at all. Um, (laughs) Why? And she said, well, what we've noticed is when we follow your methodology, slavishly was the word. She said, when (laughs) we follow it to the letter, when we go through every step, what we're seeing is that the resistance to change that we always saw in the past, it simply doesn't materialize. And I said, thank you. That's why it took me 25 years to figure out this methodology. But it was all about, I w- I, you know, I would encounter a barrier and say, okay, what are these people resisting? And then I would realize, oh, it's like that. I, I came up with the, the top three problems in process projects. And one of them is premature diagnosis of the situation. Well, people were resisting getting involved 
because they thought we already figured out what the problem was and what the solution was, and it was going to be to eliminate their jobs. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's a very holistic undertaking. Uh, as a CIO once told me, he, uh, he wanted me to come in and just share best practices. And I said, sorry, it won't work. He said, well, why not? And I said, because your people won't trust it. They got to go through all of this. And he had a beautiful line. He said, oh, I get it. You can't skip the therapy. <laughs> and, and, and a well-handled process change project is really is therapy. I like, uh, should people know more about your therapy and about the way that you are addressing these issues? I know that you've been active and you have uh, not only the book, but uh, also other channels and other sources where people go, can go and find out more about what, how you are helping in these process-related questions. Where would you go and point them to? Okay, absolutely. The first place to go would be, I, I would start with the webinar I did for Lucidchart. So Lucidchart, you know, diagramming software uh, for the web. They had me do a 45-minute webinar on just the fundamental concepts mm -hmm. you need to know about business processes. And then after that, they contracted with me to produce um, webisodes. So uh, each webisode, we did eight webisodes. Uh, each of them is 12 to 15 minutes on one important concept um, in the approach I take. Mm -hmm. So there is a webisode that explains my overall methodology. Mm -hmm. There's a webisode on how do you actually engage people bottom up in discovering processes? How do you design a new process? So those are, uh, my wife tells me I gave too much away. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, but it's, um, it, it's, there's a lot of resource there. Free, just like what you guys are doing. <laughs> And you, dear listeners, will find a link to these resources in the description of our podcast episode. So if you are interested in more what uh, Alec is doing, you will be able to find it easily. Uh, for, the rest of, uh, for the rest of us, uh, this has been a lovely episode. Uh, so Alec, thank you very much for accepting the invitation to Minding Your Business podcast. As I said at the beginning, I love looking at the areas that we might be somehow missing just by the pure effect of what kind of job and what kind of uh, tasks we are doing. So thank you for enlightening us. Uh, oh, well, thank you so much for, for asking me. Um, you know, I learned a lot as well. Um, thank you for your well-considered questions. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Uh, maybe we can do it again sometime. Let's, let's do let's, that. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. And okay. Yeah, so for the rest of you, thank you for listening. As usual, we ask you if you if you like us, just rate us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, every rating counts. If you have any questions, you can find us on LinkedIn. Uh, also, you can drop us an email on miningyourbusinesspodcast at gmail.com. It will be lovely to hear back from you and, uh, you know, telling us how you are enjoying our, our podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Alec. And uh, talk to you next episode. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you very much.